you think you've got dense data, but you kind of don't. You know, these are things like, you know, the cookie jar target concept that Europe has tried to do, where people put their targets in a jar and anybody can try to take them up and find a drug that works against them. I think this is what's needed in healthcare, at least for biomedical product development. We have to start competing on the solution, not competing on the problem. This is Tectonics, the podcast focused on the people and passion at the intersection of technology and health. I Build Stuff is how data scientist Eric Praxelis modestly describes his breathless career that's taken him from industry to academia and back again. Today, we'll find out how he's done so much and ask him what to expect next. This is Tectonics. I'm Lisa Soonan. And I'm David Shaywitz. And today's episode is brought to you by DNA Nexus, the secure and compliant cloud platform that enables enterprise users to analyze, collaborate around, and integrate massive amounts of genetic and other health data. So, Lisa, yes. you seem that you actually have a life, so maybe you've... Uh, <laughs> it's, it's always nice to have at least one of us check that box. Um, have you seen Hamilton yet? I'm seeing it in May. I cannot wait. Oh, where? New York? In or San Francisco, San yeah. Francisco. I'm excited right. about it. But I did see Moana, which you know was the Disney movie that Lin-Manuel Miranda right. did the music for also, and of course had The Rock in it, so I had to see it. And um, that was also amazing. And I liked that because it was about a badass chick that saves the world. I have to say we had it going, but I uh, I think I fell asleep as usual after 20 <laughs> minutes into it. Uh, much much lameness. But but one of the things I was thinking of when we talk about someone like uh, Lynn Manuel Miranda is the concept of uh, sort of entrepreneur as auteur or, or auteur as entrepreneur. A lot of the characteristics that are people, let's say like like uh, Miranda has, or that people, uh, uh, you know, whether like someone like Woody Allen or or the or the person or um, uh, Ira Glass, people who are sort of these these you know authors or authors or, or performers, they still seem to have some of the qualities of the, the determination and the vision. Do you think that's a reasonable comparison? Well, I think entrepreneurs uh, have to be showmen to a certain extent, too. I mean, you've got to be a bit of a, a bit of an every, you know, an everyman type of person to, to succeed at sales and operations and raising money and, you know, managing people and all that. So, you know, I, I could see that. All right. Well, I was thinking a lot about Hamilton in the context of today's interview with Eric, who I think may share some important qualities with Hamilton, perhaps best summarized in this song. After the war, I went back to New York. After the war, I went back to New York. I finished up my studies and I practiced law. I practiced law. Burr worked next door. Even though we started at the very same time, Alexander Hamilton began to climb. How to account for his rise to the top? So welcome, Eric, who, much like Hamilton, is truly nonstop. The sort of guy who, in the time that others are contemplating something, will just go ahead and get it done. Do you think you are always this way, Eric? Or can you reassure us that you have at least some slacker in you? Well, there's a, there's a lot of slacker there, but I'd like to stay busy. <laughs> <laughs> All righty. What's your slacker, like, slacker thing, though? I mean, when you're... In slacker mode, what are you doing? Are you wearing your, you know, your sweat sitting on the couch? <laughs> Sailing and fishing mostly. And um, if I get, if I have a few extra calories to burn, it's mountain biking, but mostly sailing and fishing. Wow. That sounds like pretty active slacking. I don't know. I, I, no, I don't think it's. Slacker fail. <laughs> it's a lot of work to get a sailboat to go three miles an hour, you know? <laughs> so. Drawing an algorithm for the wind, the optimal wind. <laughs> well, you know, it didn't, didn't uh, 
Uh, didn't Larry Allison win the America's Cup, right, with the, yeah. the best technology? He did. All right. All right. Well, stepping back. Um, so growing up, Eric, I knew that you, uh, you grew up and went to public school in Boston on the South Shore. Uh, and that when you were relatively young, your, your father passed away. And as I understand it, you went to live with relatives in the South, ultimately going to college in Alabama and getting a master's in Mississippi. Can you tell us a little bit about what that time in your life was like? It was it was a little, it was a bit like a uh, you know extended adolescence because I was about 23 when I moved south and started again. So through my mid 20s, I, I was feeling like I was 19, which was actually pretty good. But it was it was very different for me. I grew up in a blue collar family, except this one side of my uh, my distant family, my mother's cousins, where everybody is is quite accomplished. And so it, it truly was almost like a second, a second adolescence being around all of these accomplished people that were great fun, but also really smart and really successful. What was, what was the difference in terms of what they would do in their house versus what you had been accustomed to? You know, was, was, was there differences or was it they would talk about different things or, or how would you, I mean, it's sort of an interesting thing because if someone were to have sort of have guessed at the top of going from Boston to the South and where, where you'd have gotten the sort of the, you know, the sort of the more academic side versus the less. I'm not sure everyone would have guessed it was in that order. They were very similar. I think I think the only thing would be the academics living with a couple of engineers, one of whom's a, a mechanical engineering professor. You know, there was more probably more shop and science talk around, but not much else. They were boaters. They liked to fish. They liked to hike. They had dogs that didn't behave. You know, it was all no, no different <laughs> than us growing up in a lot of ways. But it was you know, it was very different. Like everybody wanted to study over my house because my, my cousin was sitting in the next room and he could answer almost any question <laughs> you had. So but he would make us work for it. But I was much more popular than as a child. Otherwise. Popular for the fact that you ha- had quick access to tutoring. Oh, ab- ab- <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Already a failed slacker. Even then. But then it was interesting because you were telling me that, that there was a, a relative who was a physician in your family. Um, and even though you were attracted to medicine and were pre met at one point, your, your relative who was a physician didn't necessarily encourage you to follow in his footsteps. Yeah, he, he discouraged me. He was a, a physician that came out, uh, actually graduated Harvard Medical School during World War II and had an amazing 50-year career after that, practicing medicine in Florida. And, you know, I think what he, I think what he was trying to tell me was he felt like the creativity was becoming less of what he did. And that he was, re- you know, he would read about science and think about science and it would excite him more than a lot of what was going on in his practice. But of course, he had that country doctor practice. He had a lot of control. It was a small business. He wasn't part of a big system. He didn't have to deal with a lot of technology or rules for most of his career. But so for him, I'm assuming it was more about uh, technology. I mean, sorry, more about science and creativity uh, than it was other things that are possibly, you know, challenging medical, medical practice today. And then, so even though you were interested in, in, in at some point, initially at least being a pre-med, um, and then beyond that, potentially biomedical engineering, you wound up choosing chemical engineering, right? And then your, your first job when you went, um, uh, decided to uh, return to Boston was in chemistry. Is that right? It was in combinatorial chemistry. Yeah. I mean, I was doing, I was doing chemoinformatics, even though we didn't have a name for it then, but it was a combinatorial chemistry company. It was a company that made lots of molecules and hoped that some of them were drug candidates. What year was that? 95, six ish. So when did that term come about? When did, when did, you know, what did you just call it? Oncology informatics? Chemoinformatics. I, I heard it. 
I heard it about a year or so after I was doing it, <laughs> you know, so, I mean, that's, that's honestly, you know, it was, it was you know, it was, he, I want to say when I applied for the job, I can't even remember. I have to go dig and see if I can see what they called it, but it was an interesting thing. It was, it was, you know, it was, it was, dev, it was, it was, um, you know, chemistry computing mm-hmm. or, 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 or chemical computing administration or something, you know, whatever. There wasn't a term for it. Yeah. But the idea is that the company was trying to make all these different, um, uh, different compounds, which uh, could be at starting points for, um, for small molecule drugs. Is that right? Okay. And then um, what, what, what was really striking is um, you, were, you were at the company called Arcule for a fairly short amount of time, and then it was acquired by J&J. But even before it was acquired, J&J sort of figured, well, the company is fine, but they really wanted you. Um, so they, they, they recruited you. And then in about seven years of rapid fire promotions, next thing you, turn, you, you open your eyes and you're, you're a VP and an R&D uh, CIO for their um, uh, Centacore unit. How, how did... How did you? Uh, how did all that happen? How did you just sort of blister through the process there so rapidly? You know, I guess it's just opportunity and chaos. Um, just, just, just to be clear, actually, they J and J did a large deal with with Arcule, but didn't acquire them. A little bit later, Pfizer did do something that was closer to acquiring them. But J and J did a large deal, and they hired me and, and did not acquire them. So that's correct. Um, you know, it was just being a change agent. You know, a lot of, uh, you know, I build stuff, right? So it was a lot of, we need a department that does this, or we have a department that's trying to do this, but it's not working. And so every 18 months to two years, I would get promoted or lateral moved, but it was really more like I was doing projects. Was it almost like being kind of the internal entrepreneur? You'd come in and figure it out and, you know, exit it and move on to the next thing? Pretty much. That's a better that you described it better. <laughs> yeah. So that's, could you tell well, us what some of these as a scientist, are I mean, that's, yeah. a, that's not the normal background for that, really. I mean, you know, you were you were pretty much a hardcore scientist at that point. How did you learn your your business skills for that? You know, it was interesting. I think as I got through that, I you know what I what I started to do very early on, and and I'm sure it wasn't intentional, was really study how organizations made decisions. That that's always and it still it continues to fascinate me. What why do they make this choice versus that choice? And, and also pay, paying attention to conversations and realizing that, you know, a lot of these conversations aren't actually informed by a lot of the work that people do, you know. And so it, it, that's a big part of kind of my, my backing of what I think of. And there's been a few times I think, well, I'm a bit more of an organizational sociologist um, or anthropologist than I am <laughs> an engineer or a scientist sometimes. Because it's really, you know, people say people's, people, processes, and systems the processes and systems are also driven by people. So it's really people, people, people a lot of the time. I think that's such a deep insight because, um, you know, it's interesting because um, so much of your, of, of your, many of your projects, I'm thinking about things like Transmart, are really focused on, um, on, on and I want you to describe that, uh, what, what Transmart was about. But it's basically about facilitating data sharing. And there's such an important, you know, technical component of, you know, how do you create a system that allows people to collaborate? But I've always been struck by how much of successful collaboration, or more commonly, less successful collaboration, reflects people issues versus technology issues, or, or perhaps the interface. What are your thoughts on that? I, I agree. You know, the Transmart story that I've, I've told more than once, and Transmart's a clinical data warehouse that um, we built at J&J and then we open sourced and it's, it's used by a lot of um, companies and NGOs and universities now. That's such an understated way of describing it, though. I mean, it's this really popular, huge, pre-competitive thing that most pharma companies 
um, uh, participate in, right? Yeah, there's hundreds of instances around the world now. Yeah, I just want the audience to realize the extent of understatement they're dealing with. In you, <laughs> I'm used to it, but if people don't know, it's like, oh, okay, it sounds like, I guess, a little thing. He's wearing just, his uh, Eric fanboy shirt over here. Yeah, well, no, but it's a big deal, and it's it's just, Eric has an understated way about him, so it's important to appreciate the dimension of, of this. But so you were saying that as you were doing it, you were solving the technical problem, but there were other issues as well, weren't there? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's a multidimensional data warehouse. And of course, multidimensional data warehouse theory has been around since the 30s. It's been around a long time, even if you couldn't build them. So the, so the experiment that we ran was really, really several things. One, using, using open source software. You know, the, a lot of the open source we selected was I2B2. So this was publicly funded open source. So there's this concept of, well, if, if you've got publicly funded technology and you're a for-profit and you use it, you should put it back out there. So that was one experiment using open source. The second one is we put it on the cloud. So Johnson & Johnson, due to, due to some fantastic leadership that I was privileged to work with, allowed us to start to put clinical data out on Amazon Cloud back in 2007, 2008, long before anybody was thinking about it. And of course, it was anonymized, but we did it. Um, and then the, the third thing was, was that it was really cross-therapeutic area. And so this concept, which you had to do the statistics and make it work right, but saying that, you know, a CNS database you know, a neurology database versus a cancer database and or, or versus a metabolic database and say, well, look, you know what, your male, if, you, if, you're, if you've got the genes on the chipsets, your, your male patients in your asthma trial could be healthy comparators for some genes for your prostate patients that are, that are getting drugged. So starting to think about subjects and starting to think about real translation across, so getting all the different therapeutic areas to use one thing. And so they're really those, to me, those are three social experiments backed with really solid execution by my team technically. So it's still very controversial, I think, for, for organizations, pharma organizations, med device organizations, hospitals, to agree to share data with their peers. Um, what was it about that moment in time that made that possible when even today everybody's arguing about it constantly? You know, I think, uh, you know, I've got to give Credit to Bill Hyde, Paul Stoffels, and the people at J and J. I mean, they felt it was they felt it was inevitable, and they felt it was the right good. And if you look, Johnson and Johnson still leads in things like the innovative medicines initiatives there. So it happened to be at that place in time, the leadership of that company got it. <laughs> you know, I don't know what else to say. You know, it must be the credo. Yeah, I mean, the credo: patients are waiting, um, as, as Dr. Paul used to say. But also, they just they just saw it and said, "Look, that's a, that's not how you're competing." You know, data density is such a difficult thing to achieve. You know, we, we keep finding that cancer is so many cancers, right? And, and all these different mechanisms. And you can, you can, you can do a lot, of terror, um, a lot of experiments. And you can think you've got dense data, but you kind of don't. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a wide universe. So getting really specific data density around diseases. You know, these are things like, you know, the cookie jar target concepts that the Europe has tried to do. where People put their targets in a jar and anybody can try to take them out and find a drug that works against them. I think this is what's needed um, in healthcare, at least at least for biomedical product development. We have to start competing on the solution, not competing on the problem. And you know, don't even get me going on patenting someone's genome, <laughs> not, <laughs> not sharing it with them. Don't even, you know, so <laughs> just don't even. So what so. are what are some of the challenges that you encountered when you were rolling out, when you were uh, trying to advance this concept? And do you think that they're still true today? I think there's some place today. It's, it's a lot less right now. P people are worried about different things now. Um, I, I think their initial challenges were just, could you actually do it? W would it work? And I think, 
you know, large IT projects don't work well. You know, this is a few years or after CA big. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was a that was a disaster. So you know, so so people just start to realize that you know that these big projects might not work. So you have to do a big thing as a small set of problems solved successively. And you know, people think it's about doing it in parts. It's not true. You know, it's about it's about walking to school one day, roller skating, skateboarding, and then taking your bicycle. You know, bicycle with no wheels is no good to anybody. You've got to have a solution. Each iteration has to bring real progress and value. And if you do, people don't care how long it goes on because they're enjoying the ride. So what was the most important discovery that came out of that effort? Um, that drugs didn't fall like um, pennies from heaven once people could get their data together. Because that was, that was part of the goop of this. There was a big goop for everybody saying, if we could just get all this together we would see everything. And of course, that didn't happen. When they got all of this together, what they realized, oh, well, that's interesting. I can now ask better questions. I still have a tough problem to solve in front of me because cancer is not simple. That is really interesting. You know, there is this, this idea, and you know, especially in the 90s and early 2000s with high throughput screening, where medicine was a, a combinatorial or a statistical problem. If I, can have, if I can make every compound that can be made and I can screen it against every assay, then I'll, I'll eventually find the drugs. It's just, it's just math. But, you know, that's not necessarily true. We may not be able to, something may not be druggable with any molecule. Interesting. So you can have all the puzzle pieces, but it may not make a picture in the end. That's, that's exactly right. That's exactly right, yeah. One of the things that, that struck me was um, you've, uh, in terms of your ability to have this sort of impact, I mean, again, it's, um, it, it's remarkable that, you know, people go into organizations and don't always have the kind of impact that you've had. You've described yourself, you've characterized yourself, you said, uh, as, a, uh, as an introvert as, and an outsider. Do you think this perspective may account for um, some of your success and impact? I think so. I think I stopped trying to just get along in a normal fashion a long time ago. <laughs> you know, you know, you might as well. I mean, you know, you know, my wife tells me that everybody likes bad boys, you know, in a, in a little way, right? At least, I'll, at least I'll, although all my daughters, my daughter's about to turn 16 and, you know, that now that's the revenge curse. But um, I don't generally think about bad boys and chemical engineers in the same sentence. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> You know, but, so but how did just, you get to the FDA from where you were? You know, it's like everything else. It's, it's people that you know and connections. There are people that just connected me with, with some of the commissioners, people just saying, you know, you're at an interesting point. They're at an interesting point. You all should talk type of thing, you know, and then, you know, you, you, you get invited down there. And the next thing you know, it starts to, starts to look real. So tell us what you did at the FDA after you were about you were at J and J for about thirteen years. Yep. My understanding is you were you were planning to go to uh, academia uh, to work with uh, Zach at Harvard, yep. um, but um, you took a detour and you wound up at the FDA instead, as uh, Lisa just pointed out. What did you do there? Yes. Could you help explain that? So I had the honor. I was a I was the CIO, the Chief Information Officer, and I was a Chief Scientist of Informatics, the first kind of Chief Data Science role there. Um, but it was also, again, a project in some ways. You know, the things that really needed to be done, one, they, there was a real need for a strategic plan for technology for the FDA. And, uh, you know, that's something I had done a lot of strategic planning and had a, had a business mind about that. Also, there was the, a need for the FDA to advance its cybersecurity to meet with the Federal Information Security Management Act, FISMA with an I. Um, and so I, I worked on their cybersecurity. And the third thing was really modernizing infrastructure and starting to get, get them to the cloud. 
you know, those are really the three, the three modernizing things. And, and I had done two of them before. <laughs> so I figured even if I, I was going to be a real outsider at FDA, I could probably get, get some of those things done in a few years there. And it was, it was, a, it was a great honor. Was it as easy to get things done working for the government as it was for working for J&J? Were they similar or different? And I have different now. I, I thought they were, they were very different. I think, I think the incentives are different, you know, and I think that's what I notice about different cultures. If I'm looking at academia or, or, or government or industry and, and, and not as different as you think, it's not so much money versus this or that. It's just the way the organizations, the, the way the bureaucracies themselves run, it's a little bit different, you know, and in academia, you're trying to get funded. You're trying to publish um, and, you know, in industry, you're moving the ball, whatever the ball is, because, you know, half the time, especially in things like drug R&D, I, I haven't met anybody who can have a, a conversation and describe what productivity in pharmaceutical R&D is, except getting a drug out. And almost that never happens. So, you know, so you, <laughs> yeah. you get into all these surrogate measures of productivity, number of compounds made, number of compounds screened, yada, yada, number first in humans. Uh, at FDA, it was, it was, it was very interesting because I had those very specific goals. So it was very easy for me to say, okay, there are 2000 IT projects running here. Yet, yet, you know, a lot of things aren't getting done. And so, well, that's, that's really easy of just applying some business discipline to that approach it. Like I'm a J and J and say, you know, go to the center head and say, what do I need? And, the, and most of them said, look, if you can get this project done for me this year, that's all I want. I said, so you don't care that there are allegedly 400 IT projects in the area. They'd say no. And so it's like, okay, focus and finish, get it done. So, you know, it was, it was really kind of using the different parts of your background in, in, a, way that, in a way that would help out. I, I, again, I, there's so much that was in that, well, focus and finish and get it done. I mean, that, that seems to elude so many people who are in these roles, um, in, in, whether in, in government or in, or in business. I, I, I am really curious, uh, how, what makes you able to be effective in challenging, challenging situations that have, um, you know, thwarted others? Especially, I think, in an environment which rewards um, status quo a lot of the time. You know, I think particularly, you know, people are not super inclined to change and moving. You know, you're talking about moving organizations into the 21st century, barely, you know, that are barely. You're with a lot of people who must have um, connections with sort of uh, legacy uh, approaches and structures. Yeah, my my accountant would tell you that I'm not smart enough to think about rewards up front. I tend to focus on impact. (laughs) And I just, you know, like a dog with a bone, I'd rather solve the problem a lot of the times, I think it's that outsider thing. You know, I, you know, the introverts, you know, right. You can be in a, in a crowded room and, and feel like you're still kind of by yourself and, and you draw energy in different ways. You know, you have to be alone to, you know, you've got to be, go to the back cave to get your energy back. If you're being very extroverted, <laughs> you spend your energy. And this is how a lot of these things are, you know, are described of course. And what I found is, you know, I can sit there and I, I study the way it's working and I just push against it. And sometimes and just say that, you know, we're just going to go this way. And sometimes people look at you like you're crazy. But, you know, usually what I have found is there's most organizations know how to solve the problems. Everywhere I've been, there's somebody there who knows what to do. And it's likely nobody is listening to them, you know. So it's like, hey, did you talk to Bob? Because I think Bob really gets it. Like, hey, Bob, come here. You know, and then, so and so that's the other thing that you can do, because if you're the outsider coming in, if you haven't seeded success from within, then you, then they just, they just repel you. It's gotta be, you've got to have some way to take something they were already doing and make that part of the solution. If it's completely from the outside, it's, it's, it's not going to work either. I love the Batman analogy. I mean, if like talk about the ultimate, you know, sort of 
inside or a, a introvert outsider who, who's in love with tech, right? He's got a whole bat cave full of technology that nobody ever saw before. Um, is that sort of the way, you know, you view yourself? A little bit only I don't really have a cool bat cave, but I, I run and I bike and I do things like that. And that's, how, you know, way back when I was learning, um, J&J just had fantastic leadership development and they would study you and they would tell you what they think they saw. And, you know, that's what they said. They would say, look, this is how you, it's really apparent that this is how you gain your energy. You get your energy, you expend it at work, you recover it during, you know, and they would, they would help you with that as a, as a way of getting to understand yourself. And I've, I just found that stuff to be invaluable. I think the fact that I moved up so well and quickly at J&J has to be a credit as much to them. So I, I want to talk about then what you, you, you went back and did at Harvard, including your setting up the, uh, the underlying system uh, for the um, in a tiny amount of time for the undiagnosed disease program and help lo- Zach launch the uh, Department of Biomedical Informatics, which disclosure, I'm also privileged to uh, be a visiting scientist in. But what I want to make sure we have a chance to talk about, we only have five minutes left, is there's a whole other aspect of your life that that um was almost overlooked in what we've been talking about so far. And that's way back when you were at J&J, you were diagnosed with a serious form of cancer called renal cell carcinoma. Can you tell us a little bit about, uh, about that experience and how your approach to challenges in general manifested and how you've approached your, um, your, your diagnosis? Sure. So my, my father passed a cancer at 42, not that type of cancer, but there's a lot of cancer in my family. So when I, when I had um, primary renal cell carcinoma, 39. It didn't surprise me. I didn't like it, but it didn't surprise me. Um, you know, I just want, I just kind of went to work on it at first. It was, it was a very difficult thing. And I actually was, I was T3. It was fairly advanced. You know, I'm a data guy, so I was dumb enough to look up the stats. <laughs> that wasn't good news. And so, but then I, you know, at the time my daughter was 30 months old, 30 months old. And I remember thinking, okay, so you've got less than a 30% chance of watching her go to third grade. And then I realized that, okay, within a day or two, there's no way to live healthily and think like that. And it just snapped. I just moved on and um, went through treatment. And then, you know, uh, I was cancer free for nine years before I re- had a minor relapse that I'm just kind of going through treatment for now. It seems like you've managed it with such resilience and optimism. You, you told me you wanted to control your life. That's I would find that a tall order. How how do you sort of enforce that discipline? It helps when you don't have a choice. <laughs> you know, I, in some ways, it, it is kind of like that. It's a little bit. Once I had a, a mentor who said, "Talk to me about playing the you know play the hand you're dealt." But I do think it's that. I also think that you know in what we do, you know, we we're exposed to healthcare enough that we see patients that just have have far less luck and opportunity than I've had. And I, you know, I draw on that as well. I just think, look, you know what, compared to this or that, and there are such, such worse diagnoses out there that, you know, you got to work with it. And then, you know, you owe it to those people, you owe it to those patients, you owe it to your family to, to put it ahead and put it behind you. Do you use your data science skills at all to, to help yourself be healthy? Is there an aspect to your professional life that you can use for your personal benefit? I'm probably a pretty big pain in the rear to my healthcare team. Other than that, I don't know. <laughs> Are you the guy that comes in with all the printouts? <laughs> yeah, even recently, like like for my recurrence, I usually that usually don't sequence. And so, I mean, I was I was I would I basically demanded that they at least do a snapshot on on my biopsy, you know, because they normally mm-hmm. wouldn't. You know, and it's like, oh no, you are. I'll pay for it, but do it. <laughs> you know, so you know, you're kind of doing that stuff. But other than that, I I just I just think you kind of keep up with it. I think, you know, to me, it's kind of just you know, health and, and thinking healthy and exercising and keeping my weight and doing those things. Then you just, you know, it's, it's going to pop back up. You know, my body decided to start growing those things when I was 38 years old. So now I'm, I'm 50, almost 51. And, 
you know, it's going to decide to do it again at some point. But I think, I think if you treat it the same way, you'll be okay. But I do think it's just about, it's just about pushing through. It's just about saying, look, there's a lot of things I need to do today and deal with, and that's only one of them. So I know we only have a couple of minutes left, but in terms of both, you're, you're sort of active in so many areas. You're, you're, you're doing the work we described with Zach Kohaney at the Department of Biomedical Informatics at Harvard. You're um, leading the leading data scientist uh, and leading their efforts at Takeda. What, what, what are you working on that you're most excited about and what do you hope to do next? I think the thing we're most excited on is we're about to launch an exceptional responder network. And this is an idea that Zach and I had on UDN. You know, one hand, you've got these... UDN is the Undiagnosed Disease Network that uh, Zach runs the data center for and has been... And so, you know, you've got this rare, unfortunate part of the population, often children born with, with genetic defects and things like that that give them, make them very ill, and often, unfortunately, they don't live very long. And then you've got... But then you, you look at things like what we've seen, especially with targeted therapies, where you have these true, true exceptional responders, people that live for decades and respond to drugs that statistically most people didn't respond to. So that's the other tale, right? That's the lucky tale. You know, somehow these people um, have this ability to respond and, and there's no way to account for it. And so just like, you know, when I started in biotech, nobody studied rare diseases. They thought there was no money in it. Now everybody studies rare diseases because you understand that you look, you're, you're getting some basic biology and it's a way to get into a disease area. And then you can try to expand and help more patients from there. And so I, you know, so Zach and I wrote a paper that got picked up by the Washington Post and got some good press, where we basically said, if, you know, thinking about exceptional responders, what I said was it's kind of like, when, you know, when you're a kid and you do a puzzle, you do the outside edge first. It's all, every piece has a straight edge, you know, and then you fill in the middle of the puzzle. So we're fascinated to see if by studying these heroic exceptional responders, you know, will we learn more about basic biology? The other thing is, unlike rare, unlike rare diseases, they do naturally cluster. You could go in and say, for this drug, how many exceptional responders, for this target, for this mechanism of action, for this disease. There's lots of ways to start to build some density of these patients. Um, and also, even in biopharma, we know who the patients are. If a patient's done really well for 10 years on Belcade, we know their first name. They've come and told us, and you know they've talked at our meetings, et cetera. So these people have also volunteered to come forward. I know Takeda is one of the companies that has been pioneering some of the work of integrated sensors in pills and the like. Are you involved with that? I am. We do, we, we do all, all the digital stuff and adherence with pills. Um, we, have wear, we put wearables. Every uh, clinical study we started this year, we had wearables on the patients uh, that consented to it, which was 90%. And we're doing a lot of passive phenotyping and, and just seeing where all what, of that What is go. the future of that, do you think, the integration of the, tech, the sensors and the pills? What, is, what do you hope to gain? You know, what, I, what I've said about it is it's kind of finding out how our patients are feeling 24-7, you know, and all the things. So, so up front, you're looking at things like vital signs and stuff like that. But you know what? If, if people sleep better, do they report less pain? Do they sleep better on one drug better than the other, et cetera? So who knows? You know, it, it, it could go lots of places. But I think just this idea, and especially when you're getting 90% and above patients volunteering to do this. You know, even though it's like, hey, I'm from pharma, trust me, let me put this thing on your wrist, right? I mean, I mean, let's be really clear. These devices are spyware. It's what they are, right? So, I mean, that's how they work. So, you really have to have trust. As long as you're not the pharmaco putting it on the wallet, they're probably okay. <laughs> well, you know, they don't know this thing that start snapping pictures when, they, when they're in the bathroom. They have no idea. But, you know, the, the point I was going to make this goes back to is how important it is to share data back with patients. They should, they should find out what we're seeing. You know, it's like, do you realize that, you know, 
Sunday nights you always sleep worse or, you know, of course people do because they don't like Monday. So two things that strike me as really interesting, I know we're running this over slightly, is, uh, is one, it sounds like um, it's a huge commitment to actually put, to do, you know, in an experimental way, uh, wearables in clinical studies, because it's got to add to the cost. And I can imagine those conversations. And I can also imagine people saying, oh, well, aren't people less likely to sign up if, there's, if, if they have to have this additional feature versus, versus if they don't? But nevertheless, you've made the commitment to do the learning, right? We, we have. And also, there is, there is you know, the other point here, which is the translational divide. When you're sequencing people, doing molecular profiling, you can get so many observations and have so few phenotypic traits to try to associate them with. Yet with passive phenotyping, maybe you're helping with that imbalance. Maybe you're going to start to find things that can correlate with some of what you're seeing. I find this area incredibly interesting. And I guess the final point is, so you really, um, in these pharma clinical studies, have a mechanism of returning the data that you're collecting to the patient? Yeah. I mean, however they'd like to do it, we're capable right now. We're looking at ways to do that. Um, it's interesting, right? I mean, you, you take the Apple watch, it's kind of, you know, the little exercise feature is kind of night. You're not going to give a patient back, you know, the four heart rates a second you took over six months, right? So it's got to be some form of dashboard. It's going to be, that's what we're kind of piloting with patient groups and stuff like that. Looking at saying, you know, like a week, a weekly dashboard of your sleep, a weekly dashboard of some of these things, you know, obviously you have to use a patient diary. I mean, if somebody, his heart rate just went through the roof in the middle of the night. It's like, well, you know, did their baby wake up and they had to go change a diaper or, you know, whatever happened, the phone rang or something like that um, versus something else. So, you know, you really have to have ways of doing this data and the patient has to be in the center of it. You have to shine that light up onto the cloud from the bat cave. Right. <laughs> but it, it is so, it is so interesting because, um, you know, back um, uh, when, um, we started this uh, pasture program uh, our fo- uh, back at Harvard in um, you know 1999 about translational medicine. Our the whole the 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 the, the key motto was our pa- and 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 the defining element of it was our patients as partners in discovery. And it sounds like you've really imp- when everyone talks about it, but it's exciting to see that at least as you've described it, it sounds like you're really focused on implementing it. And it can really seem like a pathway uh, for success in the integration of digital health and um, biomedical research, particularly in the context of pharma. We're trying really hard. I mean, this what I would like this to be the next disruption. You know, truly patient-centric healthcare. We're so grateful for you. Uh, for the great conversation. We are so grateful for you joining us today. Thank you very much. It was really interesting. Thanks so much for having me. Eric Paraxelis is a data scientist and SVP at Takeda and a visiting scientist in the Department of Biomedical Informatics at Harvard. I think he's quite the underachiever. Yeah, yeah. Well, one of these days he'll do something. <laughs> <laughs> it was really interesting, though, listening to him. I mean, I mean, you know, his... Uh, you know, self-deprecating side aside, um, you know, that's, he was pretty early to this data in the cloud, you know, movement. Oh, unbelievable. I was thinking about it. I mean, he was, you know, one of the projects that he was describing, I mean, he did before our company was even founded. You know, it's really um, uh, just, it, it feel both early and visionary and just so focused on getting the job done. I mean, it's so mm-hmm. funny that all these projects is kind of, you know, a, a, you know, I've been familiar with them to various degrees. And, you know, there's usually for some of these projects so much dra- for these kind of pharma products so much drama. Who should do this? Who should not? How do you get it done? Mm-hmm. And um, I would say a trait that at the, at his projects I would say have in common with some of the very best projects, for example, in self-interested ways, such as the work I think that I've seen happen at the at Regeneron uh, that we've been a part of. There's a way that 
the, the best products, people just seem to get it done and to focus on the execution, to have a, you know, the vision for what they want to do, and then just do it. And I think you need you know, uh, executors to, you know, to, who are just able to do that. It's remarkable. And then hearkening back to our show with Jan Bruce, just the focus on resilience you know, and, the, and that skill set that he's learned. Oh my gosh! You know, I, it's, uh, his difficult times. It's a quite. It's quite remarkable. Absolutely striking. So uh, please remember to rate us, judge us, and tell us we're worthy on iTunes. It really makes a difference. Join us next time when we'll be speaking with Uday Kumar, the cardiologist and serial entrepreneur who invented the Eye Rhythm wearable cardiac monitor, among other things. Great stuff. You can follow David's writing at Forbes, and you can follow the inimitable Lisa Sunin, AdventureValkyrie.com as well as on the Timmerman Report. We're grateful to our sponsor, DNA Nexus, the secure and compliant cloud platform that enables enterprise users to analyze, collaborate around, and integrate massive amounts of genetic and other health data. Tectonics is produced by Connected Social Media and recorded in scenic Tectonics Studio A in Hillsborough, California. Don't throw away your shot.